I got to visit a place recently that wasn't exactly on my bucket list, but I have been wanting to see it. That place being Publication Printers down in South Denver. Every autumn, this business takes on one of the biggest, arguably one of the most important print jobs in the state. So we're looking at kind of the very first blue books of, uh, of the year. This is like when the first autumn leaves fall or something. Exactly. It's a fall tradition. This is where they print millions of copies of the blue book. If you're listening to this and you vote in Colorado, you already have or are going to get one of these blue books in your mailbox. You can tell it's the blue book because it's a book and has a blue cover. Basically, it's a voter guide compiled by nonpartisan state staff. It's filled with information about ballot measures, arguments pro and con for those big questions that you have to decide on this November's ballot. So Andy, you went to this printing office to see this blue book get printed. Did you just walk right in there? Uh, You know, it wasn't actually easy to get in. This place kind of keeps its operations under wraps. It took me a couple of years of asking to even be allowed to get in there. But, you know, I wanted to because I find the Blue Book to be such a fascinating piece of Colorado politics. It's a big part of how voters decide what to do with these big state-shaping ballot initiatives that we're always dealing with. All right, the QR code works. It's the first year we have a QR code in the book. Now, I still haven't gotten to see these things flying off the actual presses, but they did let me sit in as these state government staffers put the final touches on the blue book. They were checking out all the little details, one last copy edit here, making sure the page numbers are in the right place, making sure that everything was basically okay. How many times have you looked at this thing? I think you would know. You think that, but it gets harder (laughs) to like see stuff, I think the more you look at it. Now, this was a relatively chill year for the Blue Book production team, since there are really only two things on the statewide ballot. But one of those things, one of those ballot questions, is very complicated. These staffers were tasked with explaining Proposition HH. That's the big property tax measure, and it took them a full 12 pages of text in the Blue Book. I feel like all y'all's talents were on display. Tables, bullet points, graphics, gradients. Talents might be a little bit of a stretch of a word, an adjective. (laughs) Whoa, 12 pages, that's crazy. That's a huge amount of analysis. Proposition HH is this question that Democratic lawmakers put on the ballot earlier this year. It would reduce property tax rates, and it would also have this big effect of cutting into Tabor refunds. When you put it that way, it sounds simple. But Proposition HH could have huge consequences for taxpayers and for a lot of things taxpayers rely on. That's why actually this whole episode is going to zero in on Proposition HH. Because like these legislative staffers, I've spent quite a few months figuring out what the measure really does and why it really matters. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics, policy, and for this episode, the 2023 statewide ballot. I'm Andrew Kenny. And I'm Benta Berkland. Ballots are in the mail to Colorado voters. If you haven't received yours, you should soon. It's an odd-numbered election year, an Mm -hmm. off year. So there's not as many ballot questions as you'll see in a general election year. Just two statewide measures. So let's get into it again with Proposition HH. You can think of this as maybe the blue book for your ears. 
I like that. Andy, Proposition HH. This is a proposition that has layers upon layers. Like an onion. Yes. Do you think I was going to say lasagna? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> so let's start with this topmost layer. What are the most basic things to know about what Proposition HH would do? All right. The one thing that you probably know about HH above anything else, especially if you've seen the ads for it, is that it will lower property tax rates, which means even if your property tax value is skyrocketing, your bill won't rise quite as fast as it would otherwise. And that's going to be over a period of 10 years, maybe more. So that seems like a pretty big deal. Home values are going up. There's a lot of concern across the state about what this means for people's tax bills. Exactly. So when you hear the backers of HH talk about it, they really stress tax relief. And in fairness to them, it could have a big effect. Property owners could, if you put them all together, cumulatively save a billion to maybe up to two billion dollars a year from that. And if you're looking at the individual homeowner with, you know, a kind of typical home in the typical district, that could be five hundred dollars a year in some cases. But these one to two billion dollars in taxes, hmm. this money normally goes to the government. So things that are funded with these property tax dollars, they're going to see a lot less money. Yeah, I mean, kind of. If HH passes, it's true that the local governments, school districts, they collect less money than they would have otherwise. Your property tax bill still may grow, but HH means it grows slower. And that's money that your local government is, in a sense, missing out on. And maybe they want that. Now, though, the people who wrote this proposition did have their eye on that effect. So what it does is that it, quote unquote, backfills some of what the schools and the cities are losing it comes up with a new source of money to give to them to at least partially make up for the property tax dollars they're not getting. Have I thoroughly lost you yet? <laughs> no, no, not yet, but I'll try. talk about that mechanism, that back pocket of cash. Yeah. Where, where's that coming from? Magic, free money. Just kidding. Uh, it comes from what we call the Tabor Surplus. That's money that the state was otherwise going to have to give back to taxpayers normally. But if HH passes, instead of having to refund all that money, the state can now take at least some of that money and give it to schools, local governments, et cetera, again, to make up for some of the HH property tax cuts effects. And just quickly for folks who aren't super familiar with Tabor refunds and how they work, <laughs> Colorado's government has an annual spending cap. So any taxes and fees that the state collects that ends up being above this cap, that money is refunded to taxpayers. Totally. If there's a strong economic year and we pay quote-unquote too much taxes, the government has to give some of that back. Right, and that's the Tabor refund. So with Proposition HH, am I right that these Tabor refunds would not go back to voters? Instead, they would go to schools and local governments to offset a property tax reduction. That's pretty much it. You know, the main message from the people who wrote this proposition is that they want to reduce property taxes without also hurting schools or excessively hurting local governments. So what they do is, again, called backfill, where it takes money that otherwise was going to have to be refunded, and it uses that to completely make up for any loss that schools are suffering as a result of HH. And again, it's a relative loss. Or... To a lesser extent, it also makes up for some of what local governments are giving up in this whole deal. To go back to what this means for Coloradans, yeah. under HH, homeowners will pay less in their property tax rates over time. 
but everyone in Colorado would get less money back in Tabor refunds. That's the basic calculus. If I had to sum it up, homeowners save money. Everybody potentially loses out on refund money. Schools stay the same, or for reasons I'll explain later, maybe even benefit from this. And local governments get less than they would otherwise. That definitely helps clarify it when you put it in that category of winners and losers. Mm-hmm. I, I think we both know, covering politics, that anything that does have winners and losers, there's a lot of back and forth, partisanship, <laughs> politics, you name it, behind yep. the scenes. And next, we're going to dive into why Republicans hate something that's supposed to be a tax cut. Hey, so if you don't live and breathe the state legislature like we do, Proposition HH maybe kind of snuck up on you. Sneaked up on you? <laughs> Where did it come from? How did it suddenly appear on my ballot like this? Why do I have to read 12 pages of analysis? <laughs> I think a lot of people are not going to read 12 pages of analysis. Uh, but it would be helpful to take a step back and get into the why of why this big fancy tax and whatever else measures on the ballot this year. Yeah, and I think the big underlying reason is that property values in Colorado have skyrocketed in recent years. So that means everyone who owns a house is facing much bigger property tax bills starting next year. So throughout the last legislative session during the spring, a big goal for lawmakers from both political parties, and they talked about this throughout the session, was the need to do something to shield people from these property tax values. Exactly. The state property tax administrator, Joanne Groff, told me that this was the craziest revaluation cycle in recent memory. In talking to some long-term assessors, they say they haven't seen this level of value change since 1987. And as we all know, higher property tax values means higher property tax bills. And we heard throughout that legislative session that lawmakers just felt compelled that they had to do something about property tax bills. They were going to have a big plan. But as the session went on, the question loomed larger and larger. What was that something, anything that they were going to do? We kept hearing that there's going to be a plan. We're working on a bill. And we're like, where? Where is it? Well, just a week before the end of the legislative session in May, Governor Jared Polis and Democratic leaders finally unveiled their, their plan. They had a press conference at the Capitol. Yep, they got together. I think it was in the governor's office, and they said, here's our plan for reining in property taxes and keeping the increases reasonable. The fact that home prices have gone up drives property taxes up. And they've gone up at a rate significantly faster than inflation. And we need to provide relief now to make sure that people can afford to live in their own home. But because of Colorado's state constitution, the kinds of tax changes Polis and Democrats are proposing, they don't have the power to just make them on their own. Even though Democrats hold a majority in state government, they do still have to send this question to voters for voter approval. So I think uh, there's a very thoughtful policy. It'll go to the voters this November. I'm confident it'll pass. So that was the start of it. Polis is saying it's this property tax cut. We need it. It's going to pass. He's clearly very bullish on it. And yet from that start, the whole idea turned out to have some really major critics. One thing that was very notable at that first unveiling press conference, no Republican lawmakers were in attendance. When there's bipartisan support, you'll have lawmakers from both parties standing up there next to the governor and behind the governor to introduce the thing. Not this time. Exactly. And Republicans, 
usually they are in favor of tax cuts. That's one of their big things. Right, but this time they're not on board. Yeah, and I'd say that's for a couple reasons. First of all, some Republicans said, whoa, there's not enough time left in the session. Again, it was a week before session ended. Not enough time to vet this thing. It's moving way too fast. It's way too big. When I went back and looked, the proposal's 47 pages long. This is the original bill that created all this. Yeah, and as we've been talking about, it's complicated tax policy. You have the final week of the legislative session, which a lot of bills come down to the wire at the state house, And there's hundreds of other measures rushing through to make the deadline when the legislature adjourns for the year. So we're on this final day of the legislative session, and Republicans said basically that they were not going to have anything to do with this bill. And in fact, in the House, the minority leader, Mike Lynch, even led members of his party to walk out of the Capitol building in protest. Quite frankly, we're here to serve the people of this state, not the agenda of the governor. And if the governor cannot get get an agenda item put on with 120 days and he leaves three days left to work his schedule through, we've had enough. We we Our votes don't matter. Yeah, and I would say that Republican and conservative critics also caught on very quickly that this was changing the Tabor revenue limit, changing, affecting Tabor refunds. And some of them started to say, hey, maybe this isn't about property taxes. Maybe this is an attack on the taxpayer's bill of rights. And that's sacrosanct for Republicans, conservatives who support smaller government. They see this as a rain on government spending and getting money back into the hands of taxpayers. Exactly. So if you're wondering why do Republicans oppose this thing that's supposed to be a tax cut, maybe they liked the tax cut part, but they are now coming out in force to defend against what they see as an attack on Tabor. To sum this up here, Proposition HH started at the state capitol, started with this idea of saving people money, which everyone agrees on, Yep. but turned into a big political fight the very end of session, passes on the last day. Democrats were able to put this on the ballot. They didn't need Republican votes. They didn't get Republican votes. So now we have this ballot initiative. And it's a political and a practical decision for voters across Colorado. Do they think this is the right direction for the state's fiscal policy for years to come? Andy, we've talked a little bit about the politics and you talked about big picture winners and losers. Hmm. But I think one key fundamental question a lot of people are going to have with Proposition HH is what does it practically mean for them? What does it mean for money in their pocket? Am I going to lose more in Tabor refunds than I save in property tax relief? It's a really good question. Super tough to answer. I'm not surprised, but... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let me say that there are a handful of like calculators out there from different think tanks and actually from the state government as well to help you try to figure this out. We'll maybe link those in a story at CPR.org. Let's kind of walk through it. The property tax part is fairly simple to sort out because we know that your typical homeowner family will save something like $5,000 over 10 years. So is it the Tabor refund part that's harder to figure out? Yes, the Tabor refund part is impossible to say with certainty because we just don't know what the Tabor refund picture is going to look like for the next 10 years. It totally changes based on how the economy does. So you can't really know 
how much people stand to lose in Tabor refunds. Right, because the Tabor refunds, it's based on how much the economy is growing, mm-hmm. a certain amount of money is refunded to voters. You know, how do we know how much the economy is going to grow? Totally. One thing I can tell you is the maximum possible impact, because we know how much it raises the revenue limit, how much extra money the state could theoretically keep before it has to start paying refunds. That amount would be about $10 billion over 10 years. Let's put it another way, by the time a decade has passed, the state could get to keep an extra $2.2 billion or so before paying out refunds. With that analysis, is there a way to find out for an individual, for that person's refund check, their Tabor refund, how much less they may be getting? It's tough to say because the official material for HH only talks about the first couple of years where the economy is much more predictable. In those first couple of years, it's relatively small, you know, a few dozen dollars or whatever off your refund. But the effect gets bigger and bigger over time because of the way the formula in HH is written. You know, I looked at two different think tanks from opposite sides of the political spectrum's estimates, and they agree, actually, that if the economy performs strongly, there's no recession and refunds would have been pretty big, then for an average income person, you could lose on the order of four or $5,000 in table refunds over 10 years. But on the other hand, if the economy goes into a crater and there was not gonna be any table refunds, you can't lose anything, then you really don't lose out on much because you weren't getting a refund anyway. So if I'm following this correctly, Proposition HH should save a typical property owner around $5,000 over a decade. But then it could cost that same household about $5,000 in lost Tabor refunds. So it seems like it kind of balances out. Yeah. And to be clear, that's if the economy is strong. Chances are there could be a recession. So that changes the math a little bit if they weren't going to get the refunds anyway. Maybe it's a good deal for them in the end. But that also leaves out renters. Renters don't directly pay property taxes. So for the renters, it's like, well, worst case, they lose out on a bunch of refunds and they don't get any property tax relief in exchange. And I would say politically, this is a little surprising. Democrats, who hold the largest majority in state history at the Capitol, have made renters' rights and affordability one of the top priorities. So here you have this proposition that, like you said, if you're a renter, you don't pay property taxes, but you could lose your Tabor refund. Yeah, uh, renters don't stand to gain much directly from this. I asked Governor Polis about that at that first press conference because it occurred to me as well. And what he said, though, is that renters basically indirectly pay property taxes through the rental rates set by the landlords. So if the landlord's paying less, the renter's paying less, kind of like trickle-down property tax economics. Later on, they added a little consolation prize for renters. In some years, there will be about $20 million of renter relief money going into a fund. But again, that's compared to hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of property tax relief money and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of potential Tabor refunds that are being affected. So pretty pitifully. And you can't assume that a landlord will pass through a property tax reduction to a tenant. No, not necessarily. So that's the balance of pluses and minuses, winners and losers, and complicated politics as we go into this last stretch of the election. So we focused so far on how HH affects taxpayers and how it came to be. But there is this big piece that I think people may want to think about as they weigh in on how they're going to vote on this. What's that? 
ultimately it's about the size of Colorado's state government and what it spends money on, because that's a big part of what Prop HH actually affects. So how does that factor into all of this? We talked about how the state gets to, if HH passes, keep more money instead of refunding it. And we said that's going to be used to backfill the property tax dollars that schools especially are missing out on as a result of HH passing. But here's the twist. The state could actually end up retaining a lot more money, taking away, in a sense, a lot more of that refund money than the state really needs just for property tax purposes alone. Okay, so it's not one-to-one here. So it's not schools lose a dollar of property tax revenue and the state backfills that with just one dollar of Tabor refund. Yeah, not necessarily. What really happens is that there's a formula that allows the state to keep more and more refund money each year and it grows. It's got like a compounding number in there so it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And if the state keeps more tax money than it really needs just to pay for schools backfill and that local government backfill, that extra money just goes to the schools anyway. Hmm. I got really curious about this, and I did a ton of long interviews with Democrats in the state legislature trying to understand this. And eventually, they all kind of agreed that Prop HH isn't just about cutting property taxes. Their hope, and part of the design, in my opinion, is that it actually will help increase schools funding in the long run by retaining more refund dollars. It's not just backfilling schools. It's actually potentially growing schools funding somewhat substantially. I mean, that's something Democrats for years have been trying to do. Yeah, totally. And, you know, a lot of them had backed a different version of this idea, part of this idea. Remember in 2019, Prop CC, that would have basically entirely eliminated Tabor refunds and used that money for schools and roads and colleges. And that failed. Correct. By about seven points. So now with Prop HH, we're once again debating this topic of using refund money. HH is different because it wouldn't entirely do away with refunds, and it does include this property tax cut this time. But if you talk, again, enough to Democrats, they all agree that HH could have this effect of growing the school's budget. I think this helps explain why conservatives are so vehemently opposed to Proposition HH. Because it seems like if it passes, it will really reduce some of the limits that the state has on spending and growing state government. And the government could grow pretty massively. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I'll add that a lot of the supporters still maintain that this is supposed to be a property tax measure first and foremost. And hey, if it happens to help schools a bunch, so be it. It's all about framing. You could take it multiple different ways. Right. But this does go to a longtime goal of many on the left to really loosen that taper limit or maybe just do away with it. Here's Scott Wasserman. He's the president of the Bell Policy Center. It's a progressive group. Why shouldn't the taper surplus, which comes to us with no change in the existing tax rate, why should it not be subject to allocation, to thoughtful investments? be it education, infrastructure, why shouldn't the Tabor surplus be a pot of money that we are allowed to look at? Well, I mean, you are allowed to look at it, but the state constitution says only voters can ultimately decide what to do with that surplus. And I guess with Proposition HH, this will be a chance to learn whether voters agree that this Tabor surplus would be well used to support schools and local governments, or if voters want to keep things as they are. So, Andy, now that you have peeled back all those layers and tried to make this very complicated measure as clear as it can be, let me ask you, and it is a tough question, 
What do you think voters are going to decide about Proposition Ooh, HH? The voter question. Yes. It's hard to say. It's an off year, which means like turnout's low, means a lot of voters in this election are probably going to be older, probably going to be homeowners. Actually, older homeowners in particular benefit from this stuff. But on the other hand, voters in general haven't been very friendly historically to the idea of messing with the Tabor limit, messing with Tabor refunds. And I think the conservatives kind of smell blood on this one. They see a chance to defeat this. They're pouring money into the opposition campaign and again, framing it as this Trojan horse attack on Tabor. Here's Michael Fields, who's heading up that campaign. The more information people understand or get about it, the less support they're going to get. And so I think it is a deliberate effort to not talk specifics, not talk about revenue. Andy, what do you think the biggest challenge is for supporters when they're making the case on something so complex like this? Explaining it. It's tough. I think that your typical voter is not necessarily going to understand all the mechanics of this, but they're going to wonder how it all works and why it's so long. The other thing is, I think people like getting refunds. It's like a psychological thing. You're paying taxes all the time without noticing, and then, bam, you get this money back in your checking account. So I think that some voters, a lot of voters maybe, are going to perceive this as a taking or a loss. Even despite the property tax cut and it being billed that way by Democrats. Yeah, I think so. I think that that's the biggest challenge is helping people understand the direct financial effect on them. Andy, thanks so much for walking us through all of this, the complexities, the pros and cons, the winners and losers. I think you've given people a lot to think about as they open their blue book or not and read through that 12 pages analysis or not. But thanks again. Thank you. That's it for this episode. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. I'm Benta Berkland. And I'm Andy Kenny. We'll be back in your podcast feed soon with an update on Proposition II, the other thing on your ballot this year. So if you're not already a subscriber, sign up. Make sure you don't miss it. If you're enjoying Purplish, please recommend us to your friends. This is Purplish from CPR News.